This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Today, I want to talk about a problem that we occasionally encounter uh, in our ICU, in our burn ICU, and it is potentially fatal if delayed diagnosis or, or simply missed, and that is the condition of suppurative thrombophlebitis. Now, this is a severe infection, probably it is the most severe form of infection that one can get from a peripheral IV. There's a lot of emphasis now that we put on things like ventilator-acquired pneumonia and central venous catheter infections. But as we're going to show today, that infections of peripheral IVs also have severe, uh, if not sometimes fatal, complications. So it's my hope that when we complete this, this discussion that you really are pushing the envelope as to really try to justify for every single piece of plastic that you're putting in a patient. Keeping in a peripheral IV uh, in patients just because it's a unit protocol can be potentially hazardous. Start briefly with the case presentation, and that's our patient, 56-year-old Caucasian gentleman who has a history of hepatitis and COPD. Ends up getting his uh, right leg severely burned pretty much from the waist all the way down to the ankle. Ends up in the burn intensive care unit, undergoes volume resuscitation, undergoes surgical excision, placement of allografts, which is uh, cadaver skin not to be confused with autographs. And the reason why that was staged, because the patient was overall a reasonably poor physiological specimen and we wanted to get the burns off in a timely fashion and then go back and autograph him. We had his lines out, went back, eventually placed an autograft in, and the patient was transferred to the floor. Rounded on the patient in the morning, he looked okay, a little bit tachycardic, um, no fever, uh, interactive. But by the afternoon, the patient had had a depressed metal status. His white count had spiked well over 20,000, and he was febrile, and he looked septic. Examination of the patient, we're looking for all of the usual things that uh, cause uh, infections. And one of the staff nurses, one of the ICU nurses, noticed that the patient had an area of red redness and a knot from a previously placed IV site uh, on the right upper extremity. When she palpated it, uh, purulent material was expressed from the previous IV site. And we had our diagnosis then, and that was separative thrombophobitis. What is separative thrombophobitis? Well, it's defined as the presence of intraluminal pus or bacterial contamination of a clot in the most serious form of catheter-related sepsis. Mackey, who's done all of that work on central lines, he wrote some papers way back uh, into the 80s, or excuse me, 1977. Mackey and colleagues in New England Journal of Medicine, 1977. And he described it as... Um, um, the uh, catheter-related sepsis, quote, in its most severe form. Mackey later went on to describe that uh, a separate thrombophlebitis has a documented incidence in the entire hospital pop- population of 0.2% of patients receiving IV therapy. It's a major hazard in patients, particularly with burns or severe trauma. There's been several papers out um, by um, Jeff Hammond, um, by Basil Pruitt and, and by Chip Baker that have shown that in various populations at different t- periods of time that the incidence of separative thrombophlebitis is reasonably constant, ranging about 3 to 4% in major trauma and burn patients.
Dr. Pruitt published a paper uh, back in 1970, and in that paper, he looked at 1,929 burn patients that were treated um, at the U.S. Army Institute of Surgical Research, the, the, the Brook uh, Army Burn Center, over a nine-year period. He found 76 per cases of thermophlebitis, and that gave him an overall incidence of about 4%. When he published that article in 1970, um, the diagnosis of separative uh, thrombosulfitis was often made at the time of autopsy. And it was, quote, the most common source of infection in burn patients dying with sepsis, which is something really to stop and to give you pause that it wasn't something that was diagnosed typically anti-mortem, and it was the most common cause of death in burn patients uh, 40 years ago. Uh, which now I think that we don't take the diagnosis potentially as serious as we should or we don't scour the patient in the intensive care units as closely as we should looking for this uh, diagnosis. Pruitt reported in that paper over a two-year period uh, in the years of 1967 and 1968 that separative uh, phlebitis accounted for 27 of 81 deaths. 33% of the deaths in that series. They described that the hallmarks uh, of the diagnosis of separative thrombophlebitis include a complete absence of symptoms in 68% of the patients. Ten years later, he repeated the study looking at the next ten years of patients. He published this in 1980. And from 1970 to 1980, there was no change in the incidence of separative thrombophlebitis in his burn patients still remained at 4%. In that second series of patients that he had, patients who ended up developing separative thrombophlebitis had a mortality rate that, again, remained very high. And in that second series, the mortality rate was 83%. In that group, only um, 35% of the patients had any kind of local signs or symptoms that basically suggested or assist with the diagnosis of an infected peripheral IV site with separate thrombophlebitis. People continue to wrestle with the diagnosis, and one of my mentors, Chip Baker, um, wrote a paper with George Sheldon. And these are some giants in surgery. Uh, Dr. Baker is currently the, the chairman of surgery at LSU. Uh, he was my um, trauma chief when I was at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and he wrote a paper with George Sheldon, who was my chairman when I was at Chapel Hill as a fellow, and uh, Dr. Sheldon is a past president also of the American College of Surgeons. And they wrote a paper in 1979 and published it in the American Journal of Surgery. And again, their findings were consistent with those of Dr. Pruitt, and that is that this is sometimes a very difficult diagnosis to make, and the diagnosis is typically made in a delay fashion. They looked at 54 cases, and in those patients, there was a delay from the uh, uh, time of symptoms to the time of making the diagnosis of six days. And Baker's series, the most common presenting symptom, was pain in 83% of the patients. And this was followed by a fever of greater than 102 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, or 38.9, in 63% of the patients. What was interesting in the Baker series was that 70% of the catheters had been inserted in the emergency department and uh, had remained in place. And this is a large part of the reason why the, we, uh, when people get admitted with catheters either from the field or the emergency department, they're considered contaminated and they're changed uh, on admission. So what are the salient features? Well, separative thrombophlebitis is a 
potentially fatal complication that occurs from an infection from peripheral IVs. We've got a lot of focus currently on central venous catheters, both in the technique of insertion as well as the technique to maintain those catheters. There's a tremendous amount of benchmarking being done on central venous catheters, as well as external uh, um, uh, reporting of potential complications or nosocomial infections of uh, central venous catheters. That does not give us a pass when it comes to uh, exercising the best technique we possibly can for the insertion of peripheral IVs. Uh, we do a lot now to question the utility or the necessity of having a central venous catheter in a patient. When we make rounds and the patient's got a subclavian catheter, what do we do? We say, do we need that central a subclavian catheter? And typically we'll try to, to get it out or have it moved to a peripheral catheter. Just because the patient has a peripheral IV, though, does not mean that the patient is now free from the possibility of developing a nosocomial infection from that venous catheter, even though it may be inserted in the arm or the hand, which means we have to still make meticulous care when we insert and maintain that catheter. The other thing is when we take catheters or we admit patients from the emergency department or pre-hospital service, uh, ambulance or a helicopter, we have to consider that those peripheral IVs are contaminated. The data clearly shows that those are the, 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 the catheters that are most at risk for the development of a separate thrombophlebitis. Therefore, those catheters should be changed out, not changed out, let me rephrase that word, removed as soon as possible, but certainly within 12 hours of admission. One of the things that the Baker uh, trial looked at is they tried to find perhaps uh, associated factors. One of the things they found is concentrated potassium um, may result uh, in the development of uh, thrombophlebitis. So if you can, by all means, try to avoid the use of concentrated uh, potassium solutions in peripheral IVs. And I think most people have moved away from that practice in general, uh, not so much uh, to the intent of reducing the incidence of suppurative thrombophlebitis, but just because of the pain that's associated with giving concentrated uh, potassium solutions and antibiotic solutions through peripheral IVs. The other salient feature is have a high index of suspicion. You can see that from people are, are self-reporting um, very reputable people. Dr. Basil Pruitt in his papers in the 70s and the 80s, what did they show? As well as Dr. Baker, showed that there is a significant delay in diagnosis from the time patients actually present their symptoms to the time we actually make the diagnosis of separative thermophlebitis. These are people who are giants in surgery, and they're reporting that we had a difficult time making that diagnosis. So when you go to evaluate a patient who looks septic, we typically look at the, 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 the common things. We look at the x-ray looking for the VAP, the that meaning a ventilator-acquired pneumonia. We may look at the central line. We're going to look in the urine. Uh, people may get a CAT scan looking for uh, the hissance of an anastomosis or a peritonitis. But go back with a fine-tooth comb and look at that patient's arms and legs and look at every single one of the IV sites that the patient currently has and the one that the patient previously had. And again, when you look at the literature, the ones that get infected are not the ones that the patient is currently using. They're venous catheter sites from days and days ago. So those are the ones that are going to get you in trouble. When you find them, what is the appropriate course of action? Well, you have to have a high index of suspicion that the patient's got an infected vein, knowing that this has a reasonably high mortality rate associated with it. Left untreated, 
this has a 100% mortality rate. Even treated, it has a reasonably high mortality rate. But the treatment, what antibiotics do we start the patient on? It's kind of a trick question that I like to kind of torment my residents with. But this is a surgical lesion that requires a surgical therapy. When the patient has a separative thrombophlebitis, they will need antibiotics. They probably are already septic or bacteremic at the time of the diagnosis. And you need to treat the antibiotics for that. But the treatment of the uh, separative thermophlebitis is that as a surgical one. And it's taking the patient to the operating room and, ex and basically excising the involved vein as well as the involved tributaries. Well, what is the limitation of our excision? It's a question that people get asked a lot on rounds. It's a question you may see on boards. But you get excised back-to-back -to -back bleeding. So you can have somebody who has a infected vein, um, suffered a thrombophlebitis in their antecubital fossa, like the patient that I presented here. And you keep dissecting back and back and back, and the next thing you know, you find yourself in the axilla. And you still have basically infected clot all the way up to the level of the axilla. And you may be resecting that vein at a very high level until you have good back bleeding. But that is the appropriate surgical therapy. You've been listening to the podcast... I see you rounds. My name is Jeffrey Guy. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.